All right, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all you daddies. <clears throat> yeah, give them a hand. There. Lot last uh, Mother's Day, you know, I'm in a, said I'm one of the benefits of the position that I am in that I get to recognize and honor people publicly. And so I just want to say that, uh, give a shout out to my hero, my dad. He's not here today, but I tell you what, he's, I, I realize more and more how I'm in a lot of ways the exception rather than the rule when it comes to having a, a great father. And uh, he uh, taught me a lot, one of the reasons I'm here today. So just in front of everybody, I just wanted to honor him. And he'll probably go back and listen to this since he's not here today. So, Dad, I love you. Um, one of the things that Danny failed to mention a while ago in the, the blood drive thing, and this is huge, and this is going to get hopefully more of you to sign up. If you sign up and give blood, you get half price off any Texas Ranger ticket. So if you want to go to a Ranger game this summer, you get half price off of that if you give blood. So good deal there. Rangers are fun to watch right now. Uh, they're doing good. Um, Father's Day, um, you know, if you've been coming to this church very often, you, you know that I'm not big on uh, holiday messages, that I don't preach a sermon just because it happens to be that particular day or anything. They don't give Father's Day messages just because it's Father's Day. I may give one on another day, but um, something I want to mention briefly, it just kind of hit me this morning when I was thinking about everything. The key to, be, to being a good father is learning what it means to be a son of the Father. If you know what it means, truly means to be a son of the Father, it absolutely changes everything. And your ability, men, to be a good father will be directly tied to what you understand of what it means to be a son of the Father. And so that's your task. Say, I want to know how to be a good father. I want to know how to be a good son. Find out what it means, or, or a good husband, Find out what it means to be a son of the Father. Because when you find out what that truly means, it, it, it'll change your whole world, all your relationships, and everything else. So there's your quick Father's Day sermon this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans 14, because that's where we still are right now as we go through this Romans series. We've been in 14 for two or three weeks now, but today we're going to finish this up going to read right through, even though we're a little less than halfway through the chapter, we're going to finish it up. So today we're going to start in verse 10, and if you are there, let's stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. Romans fourteen ten, Paul writes, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account to him, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
For if because of your food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him from whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just ask right now that you would come and give us understanding of your word. God, let us know what it means to belong to you, the things that we have in you, King Jesus. Pray that through truth this morning, you would change us from the inside out so that you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we have learned so far in chapter 14, um, it, it, 14 just continues the theme of chapters 12 and 13, which is telling us how to love one another. But chapter 14 deals specifically with how to love one another in spite of all the many differences and disagreements that we have that can very easily divide us. But even more specifically than that, it's really about how mature Christians should treat those who are less mature in the faith. And this is a very important issue because with, uh, without keeping everything within the framework of the gospel, the tendency many times is for mature Christians to judge and condemn immature Christians. Uh, we usually find it difficult to be patient with one another. And a lot of times we will hold unrealistic expectations on others and think, you know, we got to be careful of thinking because we may have arrived in some point with God, then other people should be in the exact same place that we are. But that's not how it works. And this happens a lot in church, especially when it comes to things that we feel very passionately about. And just as an example, I've known people, and I'm sure you have too, who may have felt passionate about something, you know, maybe it's foreign missions that they feel a burning passion about and want to do something about that, and, and so they think that everyone else should have as strong of a passion about foreign missions as they have, or someone who has a big burden for prison ministry thinks that everybody else should have just as strong of a burden for prison ministry as they have. Some who have a passion for Bible study can't seem to figure out why everyone else doesn't get excited about studying the scriptures the way that they do. And so a lot of times when we get that way, we also tend to get very frustrated and start judging and condemning the whole church itself and say, well, how can people call themselves Christians if they don't feel strongly about this obvious need that is going on right here. They're just a bunch of self-centered church people that just want to stay comfortable to themselves. And some people will even leave over stuff like that. And there we have more division in the body. 
Now, there very well may be people in American churches especially who are self-centered and do just want to remain in their own little comfort zones, but just because someone doesn't have the same passion about something that you have does not necessarily mean that that's where they are. I mean, the church wouldn't be very effective at all if everyone had the same passion over the same thing. We would all be, be effective at just one thing. If everyone had a passion for foreign missions, nobody would be doing the prison ministry. If everybody had a passion for prison ministry, nobody would be doing uh, the mission work. If everyone had evang- a passion for just evangelism and winning the lost, we'd be creating nothing but a bunch of spiritual orphans. But praise God that he gives different people different passions for different things. He gives someone a passion for evangelism and reaching the lost so that they'll go out and reach them so that someone he gives a passion for discipleship comes along and disciples them and grows them up in their faith so that we won't have a bunch of spiritual orphans running around. If you have a passion for something, God put that passion in you because he called you to do it, not someone else. And so the question should, that you should ask is not, well, what is everybody else doing about this need? The question you should be asking is, what am I doing about this? What am I doing with the passion that God has placed in my heart about this? And if you are faithful in that, then great, keep doing it. But be careful not to judge and condemn those who aren't doing as much as you are or feeling the sense of urgency about something as much as you, you are. Because God may have given them something else. That's part of some of what Paul is saying here in chapter 14. But really the context of this here is how to use not the passions that we have, but the freedom that we have in Christ. For this church in Rome, the main issue that we've been talking about or been seeing in, in, in the scriptures in chapter 14 so far was the issue over eating meat. And there's really two reasons on why this was such a big deal in this particular church. One of them I kind of briefly mentioned last time was the fact that they were surrounded by this godless culture who worshiped these pagan false gods and some of them during their religious ceremonies would offer meat as a sacrifice to these false gods. Now, of course, these gods weren't real. They didn't exist. So by the end of the religious ceremony, there would be this pile of meat that was perfectly fine just sitting there. So they'd be like, what do we do with all this meat we have left over now? They didn't want to throw it away because meat was a precious thing. It was not nearly as available as it is to us today. And really only the the wealthy in society could afford to, to eat it and buy it on a regular basis. Poor people rarely had a chance to eat meat. And so they would take this meat that had been used in these pagan rituals and sell them to the public at a, a very discounted price. And so many of poor people, especially some poor Christians, well, now they had a chance to to buy meat that they they could actually afford. But there were some in the church who obviously thought, well, Christians shouldn't have anything to do with that meat. I mean, this was used in a demonic, godless, uh, pagan ceremony. It's probably going to be cursed and and affect you bad in in some way. Don't eat that. But then there were some who, who... 
realize, you know what, God created this meat. That false God didn't. There is nothing wrong with that. If it's being made available, I'm going to eat it and be thankful to God for that. And so there was that division going on there. But the other thing was that most of the Christians at this church in Rome were Jews because they were the ones who went to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and got saved and came back and were a part of the church there in Rome. And, of course, as a Jew, you were always raised believing that some meats were clean and some were unclean and you couldn't eat them. And if you've just had one belief and thought for a long time, it's hard to automatically change that and buy into the fact that pork is now clean and it's okay to do that. And so some of them still believe that even Christian Jews should still stick to the tradition and not eat meats that were unclean. So you had both of these frictions going on over meat. But whether or not to eat certain kinds of meat, obviously that is not an issue that is front and center with us. That's not something that we can relate to very well today. But we do fight over similar issues. Things that have absolutely no bearing on eternity and absolutely no bearing on someone's salvation or their standing with God. Even though we tend to treat them as if they were such important issues. Things like what to wear to church. Can you wear a hat to church and wear it in the building or no hat? Blue jeans or slacks? Shorts or long pants? Collared, t- collared shirts or T-shirts. And we also fight and condemn one another about whether or not it is okay for Christians to drink alcohol. Not getting drunk because Scripture is obviously against that. Christians should not be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. But just having a glass of wine or a beer, um, that's something that, that we fight over and condemn one another over. Another issue, this one seemed pretty far-fetched to me, but I know a guy I used to work with before I got into the ministry, and if he still has the same belief that he did back then, he would never darken the door of this church. And the reason for that is because I have a beard. I mean, for some reason, he had this strong conviction that preachers should always be clean-shaven. And here's why that's pretty silly. I am clean-shaven, but it's the top part of my head instead of the bottom part of my head. (laughs) But for some reason, according to his twisted theology, you could only be clean-shaven on the bottom part and have hair on the top part. But somehow, because mine is reversed, I'm out of God's will or this church isn't blessed or, or something like that. So there's these petty issues that we tend to make uh, mountains when they're not at all. Um, But here's the thing. You know, it's okay to have strong convictions about these things. And we talked about last week how Paul even encourages us. Whatever you believe about this issue, believe it. In verse 5, he says each person should be fully convinced in its own mind. So it's good to have a strong opinion on any of these issues. What is not good is to allow those strong beliefs to cause division and broken fellowship. So how do we keep that from happening? Well, here's the deal. There is no biblical basis for the belief that wearing a hat in church 
is going to affect your standing with God in any way. That God's going to be mad at you, that he is going to withhold his blessings from you, or anything like that. The Bible upholds the doctrine of justification by faith, not by hats and clothes. Paul would say, as he did in verse 3, God has accepted him regardless of what he wears. So should you. There also is no biblical basis for the beliefs that Christians shouldn't drink. Now again, there is for getting drunk, but not for enjoying a cold beer on a hot day or a glass of wine with dinner. There's nothing in the Bible that would say that in itself is a sin before God. If it was, then Paul wouldn't have said to his young protege what he did in 1 Timothy 5.23, when he said, don't just drink water all the time, have a glass of wine every now and then. We learned last week that God can be glorified in both sides of these petty issues. He can be glorified in someone abstaining from alcohol just as much as he can be glorified in someone uh, enjoying it and being thankful to him for it. He can be glorified in someone wearing jeans and a t-shirt just as much as he can be glorified in somebody wearing a three-piece suit to church. That was last week. The fact that if God can be glorified in such opposite extremes as life and death, then surely he can be glorified with everything in between. Now, obviously, there are some things that God cannot be glorified in. God cannot be glorified if you commit murder. He will not be glorified in anything that is a blatant sin before him. But anything outside of things that are obviously sinful, he can be. But even that has a qualifier. He can be glorified in those things only if they are done with the right attitude and the right heart. Before we look at what that means, I want you to see where we stand right now in this. You've got two sides that are opposed to one another. You've got those who have strong convictions about eating meat, not eating meat. About wearing whatever you want to wear to church or dressing up nice and respectful. You've got those who believe you can have a glass of wine and those who believe Christians should abstain from alcohol. God's Word is the ultimate decider of these issues. Would we agree on that? Yes, good. Thank you. It should be. And so far, things look pretty good for the side that understands what it means to be free in Christ. And we even have a strong verse here in verse 14 to support that. Where he says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He goes even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 10 and says that all things are lawful and permissible. So if this were a contest or a trial in court, it it appears that the hat wearers, the wine drinkers, and the beard growers win. They're the ones that are right. Woohoo! But hold on before you get too excited about it. Because the issue here is not who's right and who's wrong about these things. The issue that is at stake here is how do we keep these things from causing division among us? How do we continue to love one another regardless of what we believe? About these things. 
And according to Romans 14, the burden on being the peacekeeper and the one who is protecting the unity of the body primarily falls on the ones who seem to be right on these issues. Paul calls those who embrace their freedom, those the ones who have a stronger faith, and those who don't believe they are free in everything, weaker in their faith. And he says in the first verse of chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and then the last part is huge, and not just please ourselves. In other words, don't use your freedom just for your own soul benefit. That's the summation of chapter 14. Let's look at some of these verses a little closer here. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Usually when we have strong beliefs that differ from someone else, we get determined, all right. We determine to prove that we are right. Paul doesn't say that. He says, determine not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Determine that you're going to think of your brother more than you're going to think of yourself. Verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, or hats, or clothes, or alcohol, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food or anything that you believe that you are free and have a right to do him for whom Christ died. And I love verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking or what you wear or how you look, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. Someone may think that by publicly flaunting the freedom that they have in Christ to do a number of things, that by doing that, they are displaying the kingdom of God in operation. The kingdom of God is not displayed by drinking a beer or wearing whatever shocking apparel that you have a right to wear, even though you are free to do that. The kingdom of God is displayed in righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit and the unity of the body. You know, there's a new fad, if you want to call it that, that's going on in the church right now like many silly fads that pop up here and now. I don't know if any of you are aware of it or not. But it's this crazy thing where some Christians are big on flaunting their their freedom and by doing so believe that they're going to be more relevant to the culture and therefore more people will be accepting to, to their faith. And so they make a point to be very public about cussing, and drinking, and whatever behavior looks like the world, that the Bible might not necessarily explicitly say is a sin. And so I saw this preacher on YouTube when I was looking into this thing, and he, I think he was main text was on David and Goliath, and I have never in my life heard David and Goliath preached on like the uh, preaching. I shouldn't even use that word. Because every other word in his talk was every cuss word you could ever imagine. I mean, he was dropping letter bombs all over the place 
all talking about how bleeping great Jesus is. And it was crazy. And it made me literally, my stomach turned. And he was thinking, man, I'm being relevant to the culture here. Just because you are free to do something does not mean you are exalting Christ by doing it. The kingdom of God is not displayed by doing things that everybody in the world does. The kingdom of God is displayed in things that you won't find out there in the world. Verse 18 and 19, I believe, are the most important verses in this text. Let's look at it. It says, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We don't pursue the proof that we are right about this. We pursue peace between each other and the building up of one another. The majority of the time, that's going to mean laying down those things that we feel so strongly about. Laying down those things that we believe that we are right about. Notice verse 18 says that we are acceptable to God if we serve Christ in this way. Some people might say, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm serving Christ. Well, Paul doesn't say we're acceptable if we serve Christ. He says, if it's done in this way. Which then speaks to the thing that it, that it may be possible to serve Christ in a way that is not acceptable. Well, what way is he talking about? The way of serving Christ while favoring others over our strong opinions, beliefs, convictions, and rights. If serving Christ in a way draws more attention to you than it does to him, or it's causing division between you and broken fellowship in the body, then you are doing it in a way that is not acceptable to God. What Paul is saying here in a nutshell is, yeah, you are right. You are free to do those things. But don't go out there and just flaunt your freedom. If doing those things is causing division in the body, don't do it. Lay it down. The unity of the body is vastly more important than God than whether or not you are exercising your rights in your freedom in Christ. If division's happening, then you're no longer glorifying God in what you're doing. What God desires more than for you to exercise your freedom is for you to pursue the unity of the body. Sometimes that means laying down the things that you feel so strongly about. I mentioned 1 Corinthians a minute ago where Paul says that all things are lawful, but he doesn't just stop at that. There's more to the statement there. 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Just because it may be lawful, just because you may have a right to do it, doesn't mean it's going to be a profitable thing to do. It's not profitable if it causes a brother to stumble or if it causes any division within the body. And again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. He's more concerned with us edifying each other than he is about us 
exercising whatever freedom or right we think that we have to do. The way that we interact with one another is way more important to God than what we just do on our own. You know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Studying the scriptures on, not just in Romans, but in other places. And it's this, this corporate aspect of worship. When we all come together in one place to worship God, I believe, I mean, based on the things that I've been finding in Scripture, I believe that we've had the wrong idea in a lot of ways about what corporate worship really means. And our wrong ideas mostly come from the individualistic freedom consumer mentality of our American culture. And when we come together for worship, the best expression of our worship to God is not by how loud we sing, by how high we jump and raise our hands, or how free we are to do whatever we want to do and worship to God. The best expression of our worship to God when we come together corporately is by how we give preference to one another and build each other up. The best expression of your worship to God physically is how you do that with God. And and I encourage you, don't let our corporate time be the only time that you are worshiping God. You need some one-on-one worship time with him. You need some time where you can just cut loose and express yourself the best way you know how. And when you do that one-on-one with him, man, that's the best expression of your love and your joy and your praise of him. That's great. But when we come together corporately for worship, the best expression of worship to him is how you relate to those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying you shouldn't be expressive in worship, not at all. But what God is more interested in is how you're giving preference to and laying yourself down for others and building them up. You know, most people in America come to church on Sundays with that consumer mindset of the culture. Well, it's all about me and what I get out of it and how am I going to be blessed and what's the sermon going to say to me and is my favorite song going to be sung. And one of the phrases that you often hear in corporate worship setting a lot of times is, you know, people should be, be free to worship however they feel like worshiping. And that's true. You are free to worship however you feel like worshiping. But when it comes to a corporate setting, you better think of others It's better to think of others more so than you think of what you are free to do. That's clearly what Scripture teaches. And there's something huge here that Paul says in verse 22. He says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. If you believe it is okay for you to have a glass of wine then you go drink that wine to God's glory and you be thankful to him for that. But that's between you and God and not something that you should just go out and flaunt in front of everyone. Don't do it in front of someone who may be struggling with alcoholism. Don't do it in front of someone who is easily influenced or someone who is so weak in their faith that they'll be offended by the fact that you are drinking that and it's going to cause division in the body. Yes, every one of you here are free to wear whatever you want to to church. 
But it would be wise not to wear something that draws more attention to you and your body than it does anything else and therefore causing another brother to stumble in some way over that. A lot of times we'll say when we come together for corporate worship, you know, just, just close your eyes and just block out everyone around you and just focus on you and God. And, and there may be times for that, even in a corporate setting. But from what I keep finding in Scripture, it seems to me that when we come together corporately, that God wants us to be intently aware of everyone around us. Because if we just block everybody out and pretend like we're the only ones in here, how are we supposed to lay our lives down for one another and favor somebody else? We can't do that. And again, go have some personal one-on-worship time with you and God so that you can get that out of your system and then when you come in here corporately, you can start thinking about others. One of the reasons I believe that so many churches are dying in America is because of what I said, that whole consumer mindset that we approach church with, just like everything else in society. What will I get out of church today? How am I going to be blessed? But that's not what God meant for our corporate worship time together to be. For a church to stay alive and on fire and thriving, we should come to church with the attitude, how can I build someone up today? How can I be a blessing to someone? What can I do this morning to strengthen the unity in this place. Man, if we all started doing that, you think we've been having some powerful worship services lately? You just watch the Holy Spirit show up in an environment like that. Because, see, if everyone just focused on what they have a right to do, we would not be a Christ-exalting church at all. We would be a self-exalting church. A Christ-exalting church is one where people are thinking of others over themselves. Why is that? Because it is a reflection of the one we worship. And this is how I'm going to wrap this up, by pointing it back to Jesus. Look at Philippians chapter 2. text most of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had every right to stay in heaven, but he humbled himself and came to this broken earth. He had every right while on earth to have a supernatural advantage over everyone else, an advantage that no one else had, but he humbled himself and he took on every human limitation that you and I have the only thing that he had that no one else had was a relationship with the father and he knew what it meant to be a son and then he went to the cross to make that same relationship available to us the supernatural things he did wasn't because of something that he had it was because he completely submitted to the father he even said the things i do i don't do on my own initiative 
I do it because the Father is doing these things through me. When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter drew his sword to come to his defense and Jesus told Peter to put his sword up and he said, Peter, don't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels in a second to come and rescue me? And you know what? Jesus had every right to do that, to call those angels down and rescue him, but he humbled himself and went willingly to his execution. In John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. He had every right in the universe to not go to the cross in our place. Every right. But the greater expression of his love and the greater expression of his worship to the Father was for him to lay down his rights and go to the cross. Freedom in Christ is an awesome thing. And one small part of what it means to be in Christ is that you are free to do many things. Wear what you want to wear, eat what you want to eat, drink what you want to drink, worship how you want to worship. But if you want to be like Jesus, the best way to honor him with your freedom is by laying down that freedom and your rights for others. No, that goes completely against our mode of thought, but it completely lines up with Scripture. Last thing, 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us this morning. And God, we admit and confess the selfishness and the self-centeredness, the way that we demand our rights and the proof that we are right. Lord, confess that we have not laid that down and allowed it to cause division and broken fellowship with others. So, God, I pray today that that would be no more. Lord, I pray that we would be a church body, that even though we do have strong, differing convictions about things, that we wouldn't allow that to cause division, that we would love each other despite of what we are right about. In spite of what we are free to do. Lord, let us be so in awe and in love of you. That our natural response to that is to just act like you. To lay down our rights and our life for the benefit of others. Jesus, I know that in that you will be glorified. In that, the rest of the world, the rest of Palestine and Anderson County and everyone else that that sees us will go, man, there's something different there. There's something powerful there. There's something there that you can't find out here. It's 
no wonder, Jesus, why you said that this will be the identifying mark of your followers. Our love for one another in spite of all our differences. So, Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and just allow that to happen even more this morning. Lord, where repentance is needed, I pray that that would happen. God, where broken relationship exists in this body right now, I pray that that would be healed and mended. And in order for that to happen, I know it's going to take someone having to lay down their pride and their rights. But I know that they will experience you in a powerful way in that. So Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way in the remainder of this time, minister to our hearts, do the work that you intend to do in us so that we may better glorify you. It's all for you and your glory. We want these things and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.